0: On this week's episode of Scale Up Marketing, I talked to Renee White, a senior advisor with the Chasm Group. Renee works with boards, CEOs, and executive management teams on business challenges tied to revenue growth. Renee began his career with a storied marketing consulting firm Regis McKenna, where he worked directly with Steve Jobs at Apple for more than five years. Renee and I talk about what makes great positioning and how to do positioning projects the right way. Enjoy.
1: Hey Renee, how are you? I'm doing great, Tom. It's good to talk to you again.
0: It's good to talk to you as well. So just give us a little bit of background on yourself and the Chasm group.
1: So I've been with the Chasm group for, believe it or not, 17 years. And before that, a, a decade or so in operating roles at Oracle and uh, TIBCO software and interwoven three public companies in uh, head of marketing roles. And then before that a long career in uh, consulting, I had my own firm for a while. Probably the only thing anybody remember is that my little firm made the original tracking and shipping software for FedEx, which was just, just before the internet and browsers came on board. And mm-hmm. then before that, I go, I go back far enough in Silicon Valley that I was actually Steve Jobs' personal marketing guy for five years. Wow. I don't think I knew that. Oh. Yeah, I worked for a little marketing firm. That uh, maybe a lot of people in the Silicon Valley that are slightly older remember and it's uh, Regis McKenna. Oh, of course, yeah. So I was I headed up the Apple account and and my my role was basically you know market uh, Steve Jobs, which was fifty percent, getting him into you know the right uh, places, and fifty percent of it was keeping him out of the wrong places. As
0: as is the role of any good agency with any CEO. So congrats for you. Yeah,
1: exactly. Wow. Wow. It might've been a little harder with him than, than most. Yeah.
0: yeah. I just got the chills. I'm a huge Steve Jobs guy. And of course, Regis McKenna was so instrumental to Apple's early days. So, wow. Yeah. Yes. So we're going to talk about positioning today. Something I know you're passionate about. Classically positioning is something I think that's certainly underappreciated that's done almost wrong 100% of the time and for a lot of companies they they think of positioning they go google what is positioning they go find some flavor of the standard mad lib positioning statement for target buyers your offering is a market category which provides benefits unlike competitors who provide competitors benefits and that's how they think of positioning, which is obviously wrong and incredibly oversimplified. So, for you who's a positioning pro, how do you define positioning and what's positioning mean to you?
1: Yeah, I'll try to make this as simple as possible because I think you point something out, and that is the, the classic definition or the template for doing it just, just is not relevant anymore. But you still gotta make it so that it's it has the the right the right point. Uh, of a pointy sword. So what I mean by this is, you know, positioning should be the essence of who you are as it relates to your market. But but notice something, I didn't say what you do for a living, which is the common misconception or outcome of a, a positioning statement is it focuses too much on what you do. And really the marketplace or potential buyers they're interested in who are you. And who are you not, right? Yeah, relative, obviously relative to other competitors, people that supply the same thing or similar. And maybe maybe just as important, especially these days in, in business to business, but I'm sure it also relates in consumer marketing, is doing nothing is probably your biggest competitor in a marketplace mm. these days why isn't, why don't I just do nothing? Or I didn't know I need to do that. Or, you know, maybe more importantly, why should I care about what you do?
0: Yeah. It is ironic, right? We're in sales kickoff season and we talk a lot about competitors. You're right. By far the biggest competitive loss that any company has is the do nothing competitor, but no one ever talks about it.
1: Yeah. Well, for, especially for younger companies, that are trying to innovate in a marketplace or even create a category, it's incredibly risky for most customers to take a chance on something new. So the answer, the safest thing they can do is just hunker down and say, why don't I do nothing? I can't get fired for that. Well, let's put it this way. It's a lot harder to get fired for that than it is to like take a chance, yeah. um, spend some budget and have it not go well. Yeah. So what makes, in your
0: mind, what makes great positioning? It's easy to point out flawed positioning, but what are the attributes when you do your research? What are the attributes
1: of really great positioning? So, yeah, a couple of things. And and again, you know, I I think positioning has evolved greatly since that template that you talked about. (laughs) You know, great positioning identifies you with your customer's view of the world and then shows why only you can help them either fix a problem with that view of the world a problem they're having with it or helps them aspire to something, you know, bigger. Mm -hmm. So today, you know, that really means it needs to be connected to a a story, something, something bigger than trying to automate a task or, uh, you know, we sell seats on an airplane.
0: Yeah. I think what, what, what we all called back in the day, speeds and feeds, no one cares.
1: Yeah. No one cares. No one cares. And it's really nice that you do that. And this this goes back actually to my, literally to my Steve Jobs, you know, era of working with him. If One of the things that I noticed very early on in working with him was he always, when, when we talked to industry analysts or financial analysts or the press, you know, Time magazine, whatever it might be, he always started with why I believe in what I believe. And then he would talk about, so therefore, this is what I'm doing. And in that era, it was always interesting because we we were always running into you know, and obviously, uh, the world knows that you know they he had a relationship with Bill Gates, and, you know, back and forth, sometimes really positive, sometimes a little bit more adversarial. But but Bill Gates would always start with the what instead of the why, mm. and you know the what does if you start with the what and say here's our shiny object, aren't you impressed? You know, people shut down, but if you start with I, I believe in this. If you believe in it too, then my answer to how I'm going to work with that is probably going to go over a lot quicker than my bright, shiny object. You yeah. Know, starting with that.
0: And I feel like, you know, Apple's position of it just works, you know, some flavor of that was, you know, talk about Bill Gates and Microsoft. Everyone's experience was well, Microsoft just doesn't work. Blue screens of death and viruses and malware and slowdowns and, I think that positioning obviously has helped Apple for a few decades at
1: this point. Yeah, yeah I, again, I think it's a, it's a good example of the real difference between great positioning and mediocre positioning is focusing on the why, why it matters and why should I care about you?
0: How does positioning relate to category creation? So you hear a lot of talk around B2B SaaS these days of category creation and everyone is aspiring to be a category creator. Does positioning come before category creation? After? How do you think about
1: it? <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question. You know, trying to create a category is probably the hardest job that marketing can ever do. Hmm. And it's it's also a long haul, Tom. It it takes time. You know, you don't uh, you don't reinvent people's thinking about what they should buy or what they should do. You know, in a nanosecond, it just people just it takes time. And there's a whole you know, the Chasm group is all about kind of that whole adoption curve. And, yeah. you know, some people get it right away because they just love fun, new things. And most of the marketplace, you know, is very pragmatic about things. So, you know, this whole, you know, does the does the category happen before the, no, You if you're going to create a category, you have to educate the marketplace on something they don't think they need. And and once you educate them, then, then you have to help them figure out, well, if that's the case, how do I specifically need it? And who else is needing this and using it? And then maybe, then maybe after all of that, if I'm past that and believe that it's valuable to me, then I'm ready to buy. Yeah. You know, then, then it's a real category. But you know, categories are made by pragmatic buyers who just want to fix a process. Or they want to aspire to make a process better. Notice I said process, not a task. So yeah. this is this is not selling a tool to a user. Uh, because it's the pragmatic buyer who says, I I've got a I i am like those kind of people and I want to do that. Yeah. Uh, and that's where you get all the customers, and that's when a category is a real category, or you can you can sell 15% of the marketplace that are early adopters and never make it past them because you never understood how to sell to, to pragmatic buyers.
0: I think that happens. We look at all of these well-funded startups who are growing like rocket ships in their early stages. They triple ARR from three to nine to 18, but and they want to be category creators, but you're right. like These, these early stage buyers, they get all this traction right up front and they hit a wall. And it's because to your point, the sort of laggard buyers that help create a category need to be marketed to differently and I feel like a lot of the reasons you hear about these startups who flame out is because they're just not pre- they're not prepared for the real world of the pragmatic buyer
1: yeah the the old saw on this is whatever made you successful in the early stages of building your category will will not make you successful going forward yeah. Um, because the buyer just doesn't relate to uh, what you're talking about. I, the one example I have is I I, I worked with a, a company in the telehealth area. And this was, I started with them maybe eight years ago and working with the CEO. And the, the original problem that they had that came to me for was their their sales had plateaued and they didn't understand why. So we dug into their, their, their sales force history for the past 18 months and realized that when we talked to salespeople about what kind of buyers they they were selling up to that point, they were all those kind of early adopter kind of buyers that said, oh, telehealth is pretty cool, I like that. You know, We want a robot in our ER. And then they hit a wall because they'd sold all those people and of the 1300 hospitals in the United States. And when they got past that, there were pragmatic buyers who basically said, well, why do I need that? Hmm. So their whole sales approach was for early adopters and that sales approach did not work with pragmatic buyers. Their sales flattened. We changed the whole way we talked to pragmatic buyers that were in their, their sales funnel and sales went up in, in something like 16 months went up to
0: 25%. So I'll, I'll net that out for you. If you're one of these startups that, that sells to other startups and you've grown really fast, you better go talk to Renee because the minute you run out of startups to sell to, and you've got to go sell to pragmatic buyers, the your world is going to flip upside down, and I see that happen so many times.
1: Yeah, and the, and Tom, the good news here is that you know you're not rec- you're not recreating the wheel. You're not coming up with whole cloth. It, it's been done you know many times before, and the companies that don't recognize that generally don't make it that much further and sell the company or you know, pack it up and real leaders figure that out and run like heck in the right direction and do the right things.
0: So talking about that, so one of the things that you do in your current role at Cousin Group is you help companies in lots of different ways, but how do you sort of scope when somebody comes to you and says they they want your help with positioning? First of all, who is that? Who comes to you? Is it the CMO, the CEO? Where do you usually get this request from?
1: Yeah, again, from one of two people, either the CMO, who has been tasked by the board or the or the CEO with you know we really need to really need to up our game in uh, talking to the marketplace. It's time we're growing up, and the and the CMO is tasked with the responsibility to do it. And you know my bias is they're smart enough not to try to just do it in house. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is the CEO calls me up or texts me and and basically out of frustration that the team isn't getting to the place that they want to get. And mostly what that's about is the positioning just isn't big enough against what we think we're really, you know, so great at.
0: Yeah.
1: I think the C and when the
0: CEO, when marketing owns it, it becomes the marketing positioning which is useful but not necessarily foundational. When the CEO drives it, it becomes the company messaging. And I think it also becomes the company strategy. When you align everybody against great positioning, then it gives clarity to the R&D team. It gives clarity to customer success. It gives clarity to, to, to everybody who, who touches a customer, right?
1: You, uh, you bring up a really important point, And that is in a way, Positioning is the tail that wags the dog. It is it is the revelation of what they could be and should be, and it absolutely has implications to the product, to who they target as customers, who the competition is, really, who the competition is, and, and specifically to all the things that wrap around the actual product, like, well, expertise and service and customer success, those kinds of things that are part of, you know, what I call the whole solution. You yeah. you call it the whole solution too. I know you do. Yep. And and that is the whole solution is what pragmatic buyers are looking for. Wow. They're not looking for another tool.
0: Like you, I studied at the altar of Jeffrey Moore as well, so I I know the the whole solution from the Documentum days and and all of that. So sure, sure. So we want to do a positioning project. We're a company. We want to engage with you. What is how does a project work for you? How do you guide companies through this process?
1: Yeah, well, you know, no matter whether, you know, a company comes to me or, or somewhere else, they, here's what they should be looking for in this. You know, the, the way you really started is, first, you've got to have the company viewpoint. So as your benchmark, right? So where do they think they are in terms of their place in the world? And then you got to go out and talk to real customers. And as I, as I talk to customers of my client, I specifically and explicitly tell them talking to you and doing due diligence with customers because I want to hear the unbiased truth about what you really want and what you think you need, not the inherent bias of folks that are you know, desperate to sell you something. Yeah. And then gap analysis, because I think that's important. What am I hearing about what the real, the real needs are and what customers' li- lives in work you know, roles are really about, not not their not their job title, but you know, what their companies expect of them. I do a little bit of inductive reasoning and versus deductive reasoning. So I don't talk to customers and say, oh, therefore, Tom, you know, (laughs) the answer is I I try to come up with what I think out of experience, okay, in doing this, I think I've done 70 engagements over my time period in the with the Chasm group. And, and try to come up with what I think is a hypothesis for what the positioning might look like. And then I play it with those customers I talk to, those end customers I talk to, to get either validation or, oops, I got that wrong. And then I come back and present the ideas and recommendations, important ideas. I like, Like you said, I don't try to come up with the answer and try to tell you that it is the answer because you guys know your business well enough I'm a quick study but you know I can't know things like the security marketplace or data curation yeah. or you know those kind of things better than the technologists and don't presuppose to do it and I make recommendations on you know you know what the path is to take it and maybe more importantly you should always look to whomever you bring in from the outside to bring in best practices so where where have other people gone before you yeah um, and what can you learn from it so that you can, one, accelerate the process of coming up with the right positioning, the one that really sings and makes something happen. And then secondly, avoid landmines that you don't need to step on that sets you back. Because the last thing you want to do is start a positioning and realize two or three quarters into it that it's wrong, hmm. that, it, that it really doesn't differentiate you from your competitors. It doesn't connect with customers in a way that says, I prefer you over anybody else. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, go, you know, forward in making that and just helping the team because these generally end with, you know, exec teams that are either listening and, and, or it's in some sort of a workshop where we're all talking about it. It's the last part you should be looking for someone from the outside to do is provoke your thinking and help you kind of, accelerate to the decision making on what a great position you ought to be.
0: What happens when, so you've done 70 of these, what happens when somebody violently disagrees with the position you've come up with? Does that happen?
1: You know, it's almost, I can't even think of a time where there's certainly not violent. There, there, there are always voices on exec staffs that believe that they know better mm. and that they have the answer. And uh, a lot of times it's people who either talk to customers and like to talk in terms of anecdotes. I talked to this one customer and they'd never say that, or it comes from the technologists that are completely, I want to say, married to the value proposition yeah. that they originally created and can't understand why the whole world doesn't want to buy the way they articulate
0: it. It comes from Bill Gates to your point earlier.
1: Yeah, you know, and for some people, you know, it's really hard to argue with someone like a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates or, you know, an Elon Musk or, you know, come up with the latest things. It's hard, believe me. And a lot of times, you know, they're visionary and they're right. And I learned a long time ago in dealing with The likes of, well, let's see, not only Steve Jobs, but Gordon Moore and and Bob Noyce at Intel and Mm -hmm. Scott McNeely, and I kind of can run down a bunch of the list of those days. And basically, some of of those people, and I would put Steve and Steve definitely at the top that that basically says, these are rare people, and you got to let them run and then help them out. And Most of the other crowd needs help. And I think the other thing you learn when this is something that I think maybe for all your audience that are CMOs or marketing people or or work with CEOs on their positionings, especially strong-willed people that are the ultimate decision makers on what the positioning should be. It's really important that you try not to be smarter than them and prove it to them. Careful if you have an MBA from one of the blue chip schools, you have a tendency to want to do that or to basically just be a yes person. And just, oh, you're totally right because those kinds of people hate both those things. So the, you're, gonna, you're gonna ask me now, so what is the answer, what's the way? And basically it's, it's to use the psychiatrist method and just basically ask, why do you think that way? Or why do you think that will work? Ask it four times and really terrifically brilliant people like Steve Jobs just wanted to be able to have someone they could take their great ideas and work it through with them. And that's yeah. all they really wanted to do because they knew they had the right answer.
0: <laughs> it's, it's narrowing on, they had the right concept. It's narrowing them on the right answer.
1: Yeah, and then helping them articulate it in a way that the marketplace would, you know, would consume it more easily than having it crammed down their throat sometimes, which was, has a tendency of, of brilliant entrepreneurs to you know, cram their ideas down people's throats. And if they don't like it, they can, you know, they can pound sand.
0: How do you measure the success? So you've gone through all this work, you've articulated it in this exec forum you talked about. How do you measure success and over what time period?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a marketing person, you know, you know even though you know, marketing measurement has become you know, more quantitative versus qualitative, and there's all kinds of ways to do you know, surveys and research and you know, brand studies and things like that, I, I have a really simple way to do this. One, one is it, and this actually, I think is actually a, a Bill Gates quote. You know, great innovations, I'm gonna, it's, it, I'm gonna paraphrase You know, great innovations always take longer to take hold, but when they do, they're more profound. Hmm. So, you know, the real way I measure it, and I, and I suggest my clients measure it is, do your ideal customers, I use those words very specifically, your ideal customers, the center point, you know, of your customers, the ideal sweet spot of your customers. Do they understand your position? Hmm. So, and can they parrot that back to you? And do they pref- and therefore, do they prefer you over competitors or even over do nothing? Yeah. If you have a sense that your ideal customers, you get a pretty good, you know, response to that. You know, the positioning is working. No positioning is perfect. Positionings evolve over time with one caveat, and that is these anxious technology executives and entrepreneurs always are working at light speed. So they think that their positioning should move just as quickly when, in fact, just when you know your CEO wants to change the positioning, advance the positioning, the customers are just getting the old one. Yeah. So careful that you don't move too quickly on this.
0: My, so, my law on that is it's like when marketing gets, gets bored of it, sales is just getting it. When sales gets bored of it, customers are just getting it. And when customers are getting bored of it is when, you know, you know, you've done something right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So careful on the quantitative stuff. Yeah. It can be a tra- It can be a trap.
0: Yeah. It turns out some of the, one of the lessons I learned, some of the best things you can do in marketing are impossible to measure in the way we want to. We all, we want the world to be this direct response. Everything is perfect attribution. It's just not how the real world
1: works. No, and I think, you know, that my, you know, my, my other comment on this is, you know, it's really the, the job, the role, I wouldn't say job description, but it's the role of the CMO to really help the CEO or the founder's you know, with the vision of the company and where they're taking it. And that's so important. It's not just get us a bunch of leads, Tom. And it's it's not just, you know, are we digitally marketing our way into fame? Mm. Um, it, it really is. If, if, if you're not helping, well, here's the thing. I've seen CPOs be kind of s- switch themselves into this role because they're technical and they kind of understand the product. And I, I kind of decry the fact that it's harder and harder now for CMOs to play that vision role and that which is positions all part of that. Yeah. With with the CEO about where we're going. Because yeah. I, I can tell you that in my operating days, that's what I did. Yeah. I'd say I'd say the marketing job, the marketing job was maybe 25% of my work. Most of my time was spent with the with the exec staff and certainly with two or three key individuals trying to understand where the vision of the company was going.
0: Wow. That is not at all how CMOs operate today. And I think that's it's one of those, you know, I think we go back and look at how we did things in the past. Maybe that's a change that we should think about, re- revisit.
1: Well, that's, that's why you don't see too many CMOs become CEOs. <laughs> Indeed.
0: Yeah. A topic of another episode. I recorded <laughs> with Dave Kellogg a few uh, months ago. So, Renee, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for this short masterclass on positioning. And to learn more about Renee and his work at the Chasm Group, visit chasmgroup.com. Thanks, Renee.